Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to the Crossover NBA Podcast. I'm Rohan Nakani, joined today and always by Sports Illustrated senior writer, Chris Mannix. Uh, Chris, a lot of topics that we're going to get to on the show today, but I've been informed for the second week in a row, we have a special guest uh, joining us later in the, joining you, I should say, later in the episode. Can you give us a little insight on that? Yes, fleshing out the podcast to multiple segments the last couple of weeks. Last week, we had Colin Sexton. If you didn't hear that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. Uh, Also last week, a spirited debate between me and Jerry Ferrara, my pal, the actor, huge Knicks fan. I went on uh, his Knicks stream, Enemy Territory, and... uh, you know, argued the debates uh, whether or not the Knicks fans let Jalen Brunson down with their all-star voting. This week, uh, a little more civilized uh, conversation. Uh, <laughs> Eric Drath is a director and executive producer of the new documentary, The Dream Whisperer, which follows Dr. Dick Barnett, who is an ex-Nick and, more importantly, the captain of the Tennessee A&I basketball team that won three straight national titles between 1957 and 1959. Now, those teams were inducted into the Naismith uh, Basketball Hall of Fame back in 2019. This documentary follows that journey, which was an arduous one, getting the Hall of Fame to recognize the accomplishments of that Tennessee A&I team. That's a doc that will appear on PBS in February, and, and I had a chance to screen it last week. It's terrific, so... Eric Drath is going to join me later in the show to talk about the making of that documentary. Excited to listen to that interview. I, yeah, you've really been putting in all this work with the guests. I don't know if you're trying to 
one up me every week. I guess uh, I'm gonna have to hit up Dwayne Wade, see if he wants to come back on uh, the show. Who else? I, I gotta, who else? I gotta would fight you hit back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, Dwayne, can you discuss the problems of the Miami Heat with me? <laughs> um, just I think he's got some Versace uh, sunglasses that he's uh, hawking now. Would love to talk to him about that. Um, maybe get my hands Product on a pair. Placement. <laughs> but I digress. Um, a lot to get to on the show today, Chris. I want to start with something. You kind of talked about a little bit last week before the news was final. You wrote about it this week, and that's Doc Rivers officially taking over as the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. Hired late last week, officially <laughs> took a few days to coach his first game, but coach uh, last night in Denver with the Bucks losing to the Nuggets. Uh, Doc already providing elite meme fodder by saying, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. I'm planning on using that throughout the year. So, Manix, I mean, let me just start with you. Like, wh- I think we were all expecting this. I mean, you were on this right away. Um, and I know you alluded to it. It's going to be a tough job, no matter who takes over halfway through the season here. Um, do you think this was the right move for Milwaukee, ultimately? I do. Um, I understand the criticisms of Doc Rivers because the playoff numbers speak for themselves. Um, his postseason record since leaving Boston is 47 and 47. Uh, his teams in the past have blown 3-1 leads. They have blown 3-2 leads. Uh, I've got a stat in my column that says Rivers' record in series where his team has won three games is 16-33. and 33. That's, that's not good. Uh, in Game 7's overall, he, has, he is 6-10. and 10. So, you know, for a guy that's coached a number of championship teams in L.A. and in Philadelphia since leaving the Celtics, uh, his teams have come up short. There's no question about that. All that being said, uh, I think Doc is is more than the numbers say he is. Um, you know, people point to him as being not a great X's and O's coach. Well, he's had a lot of top 10 defenses over the years. Uh, people point to the record, but you can't overlook some of the historically bad individual performances mm-hmm. that some of the players on these teams have had. And let's look at the most recent one. I mean, does Doc Rivers deserve criticism for the Sixers blowing a 3-2 lead against the Celtics? Absolutely. Um, does James Harden deserve more for his disappearing act? Does Joel Embiid deserve more for his disappearing act? I mean, these are two alphas. Embiid was the MVP last year. Harden... An all-star, a perennial all-star. Um, at some point, you do have to you know, put the players in that blame pie chart mm-hmm. that you're creating. And look, the, the Milwaukee Bucks have always needed a veteran voice. Uh, you know, in hindsight, you look back and think, like, even if Adrian Griffin was more prepared for this opportunity than it turns out he was... Putting a first-year head coach in charge of a team with, like, a three-year championship window was a big risk at best and a catastrophic mistake at worst. So, you know, for putting Doc Rivers in there, you're at least putting a guy in the mix that has won a championship, that has had a lot of regular season success, and most importantly, has shown a knack for connecting with players. Now, there have been some high-profile disasters. I mean, the Chris Paul ending in L.A., obviously. Uh, James Harden, the way it ended with Harden in Philadelphia. But, I mean, 
The Celtics teams all swore by him. Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, two volatile guys. Uh, they swore by him during that time in Boston. He made it work with Rajon Rondo, who is as mercurial as you get. And, you know, those Clippers teams had some talent. Blake Griffin, most notably the Sixers. Joel Embiid had no problem with Doc Rivers. So I think getting a guy that knows how to manage a team that is filled with star players, top-end star players, Giannis, Lillard, Chris Middleton, um, I think that's a win for Milwaukee. Now, does it manifest itself in, you know, a historic run to end the regular season and a, a, steam, a steam rolling through the playoffs? Probably not, because this kind of situation is difficult for any coach to succeed in. But I, I think Doc Rivers is the right coach now, and he probably should have been the right coach back when the Bucks were doing their hiring last spring. Absolutely. you. I think you made the most important point, which is his ability to connect with star players, even him and Chris Paul, for example, on much better terms now than when he left L.A. And you alluded to this last week. I mean, there was your reporting, other reporting, that there was friction between uh, Giannis, Damian Lillard, and Adrian Griffin. And I, I commend the Bucks for at least acting quickly. You know, that this is this is not a scared move. It might be some people might read it as desperate. I read it as aggressive. They understand. Um you know, John John Horst has said multiple times, like, when you have Giannis, you're always on the clock. And I, I commend them for being aggressive and not kind of sitting back and letting it play out and realizing, hey, like we we're serious about winning a championship right now. We have to take action. And to your point about like even Doc X's and O's, this criticism there, something that I think, you know, at this point in his career, he has a better opportunity than Adrian Griffin is filling out his staff. You've already seen him go out and hire a couple assistants. Um, it's easier to work for someone like Doc with his cachet than we've seen Adrian Griffin that kind of, you know, bumped heads with Terry Stotts before the year. So I think Doc helps them there. Um it's definitely an aggressive move, and I respect it. And yeah, to your point about the playoff failures, if you go back and look at each one, I think the Rockets one is maybe the most inexcusable, but uh, there's context to every single one of those. Was that the bubble one? The bubble one was the worst. The bubble uh, one was tough, but even the bubble one was like, they're, they were in the bubble. Like, that was a weird yeah. year. Like, but everybody does, was in the bubble. They, of they course, should, but they, yeah. they, they should have won, won it. They, they should have won, won that series. But does Denver, like, win a game six on the road? Like, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but um, there, there's a lot of context to each and every one of those playoff series. Don't want to get me started on Embiid and Harden, which I, I got my feelings clear in the summer. I thought it was hilarious that Bob Myers said he would take Joel Embiid for a finals game seven over Nikola Jokic. Um, I don't know if he was too busy during the playoffs last year to see Joel Embiid's last game seven. Um, thought that was a, a, just a hilarious... Uh, take, but I like what the Bucks did here with Doc. To me, what's going to be interesting is I think Doc is going to get there. He's going to connect with Dame and Giannis. That's what he does best. He's going to fill out the staff. My big question is, can he fix the defense? And, and you mentioned, I mean, he, you know, back in his Celtics days when he had Tibbs on the bench, like and Kevin Garnett, um, they were putting together incredible defenses. He did it with the Clippers when he had Kawhi and Paul George. He did it when he had Joel Embiid as one of the best rim protectors, if not the best rim protector in the league. But can he find a way to engineer a defense with this Bucks team? I wrote about this last week. Like The worst defense we've seen in the last 15 years win a title was the Nuggets last year, and they were 15th in defense, so right in the middle of the pack. And they had 
just an offensive savant. Like they had by far the best offensive player in the league. Um, the only other other team out of the top ten was the Warriors, I believe, in twenty uh, seventeen, and they were eleventh. And they had Steph and KD, and you know there are huge qualifiers to non top ten defenses winning a championship. The Bucks are, you know, in the twenties. Okay, they've not been good. Uh, like you mentioned this, like Detroit is a team that's putting up huge numbers on them. What's your kind of your confidence level in Doc turning around the defense? Because I don't know if he's the horses for it. I, I don't know that he can turn around the defense. The question is, can he get it into that top 15? Like that's the big one. They're never going to be a top 10 defense, not with his personnel. It's just not going to happen. Um, and that's the operative word there, personnel. I mean, Adrian Griffin uh, definitely had the wrong approach early in the season. Like you don't bring that toronto blitzing pressure defense to a team that is you know built around two effectively seven footers in brooke lopez and Giannis tentacumpo the raptors had long rangy wing guys pascal siakam scotty barnes og ananobi the bucks don't have those guys you, you've got to build a defense around the personnel that you had and i thought that was adrian griffin's first mistake with this roster doc will have his own ideas and we'll see if those ideas can can improve them moderately enough that they can stay in games that allow their offense to just take over. I mean, look, this is fundamentally a personnel issue. You know, they went from having arguably the best perimeter defender in the NBA in Drew Holiday to having a, a, a string of guys that are average to below average at best. I mean, Damian Lillard is in that category. Malik Beasley is in that category. Pat Connaughton is in that category. Category. Chris Middleton, frankly, right now is in that category. So, you're not going to have guys that can stop the ball, you know, regularly at the point of attack. So how do you build a defense where you're at least funneling those those offensive players into Giannis, into Brooke Lopez, into Bobby Portis, where you can, you know, force guys to take cont uh, tough contested shots? That's going to be on Doc. That's going to be on Dave Yeager, who's one of those assistants you're talking about uh, that hopped on to Doc Rivers' bench. They don't, again, they don't have to get this team into the top 10 because this team will never, ever, ever be a top 10 defense. They don't have the manpower for it. But can they get to that 15 range where the Nuggets were last year? If they can get into that spot, I think they still have a chance to win a championship. You saw that game Monday against Denver. I mean, you know, you expect some bumps along the way mm -hmm. with Doc, but there were moments there where, you know, the Bucks got some stops. They know, looked good. They, they looked good. They looked good. They looked good. You know, kind of fell apart a little bit at the end. But, you know, there were reasons to be optimistic that this team can find a way to become an average defensive team. And as long as you set the bar there and say average is where you need to be, um, you know, you can be hopeful for the future. For sure. Um, and I think they are going to be active around the deadline uh, to try to find that defensive upgrade. Good a name luck. I've heard. They don't have any. Yeah, they, <laughs> yes. It, it, a name I've heard multiple times now. I don't know how they get him salary-wise, but I think is available as P.J. Tucker, who even if he's lost a step, I do think can bring them something. I I wouldn't give him well, away if yeah. I was the Clippers. That's still a guy that yeah. defends Jokic in the playoffs. I agree. You know, you know, unless, I, unless Tucker is you know holding a George Costanza-like revolt, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't move off him. I, I would not be surprised, and I, you know, I do think that, you know, I don't want to speak for PJ Tucker. Certainly, I, the sense I get is a there's probably some frustration there that uh, he's not playing. Is. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'll see. I, I'm with you. I think the Clippers should hold on to him, but 
Um, it really we'll Clippers, like it's not like it's clearly not a distraction for them. I yeah, mean, they just true. rolled into Boston and just blitzed the Celtics right uh, on Saturday. So uh, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, you got to you know look. PJ is getting paid. Uh, and yeah. there's a pretty good chance when you get to the playoffs, he's going to have a role. Like you can't risk going into the postseason and entering a series, and maybe Zubac gets into some foul trouble, and you find out that Daniel Tice and Mason Plumley aren't as effective as PJ Tucker might be. Right. I think you've got to right. keep every every weapon in your arsenal if you're the LA Clippers going to the playoffs. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Interested to see how that one plays out. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Let's move on to another team in the Eastern Conference. Uh, they will not be making a coaching change anytime soon, but if they were any other team in the league, <laughs> there might be some whispers. Talk about the Miami Heat. They've oh, lost your Miami Heat. My Miami Heat, unfortunately, losers of seven in a row. Uh, they got blitzed. You know, talk about getting blitzed. They got blitzed by the Suns last night. Um, you know, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker didn't even go off. The Heat were still down 20 in that fourth quarter before like a classic fake fourth quarter comeback. Um, you know, they we talked about them a little bit last week. They made the Rozier trade. I think we both loved that trade for Miami. It made a lot of sense still on a do. lot of levels. I, I still do, but listen, this team has issues. They are six games out of fourth place. Like they were in conversation for a lot of this season before this losing streak, frankly, for home court in the first round. Now they're, they're firmly in the play-in. You look at every team ahead of them, Indiana upgraded, the Knicks have upgraded, the Cavs, shout out to the Cleveland Cavaliers, they beat the Clippers last night, Evan Mobley finally coming back, they've been playing great despite um, an unbelievable amount of injuries, so, you know, the Heat are looking at a real uphill climb here, 
And Chris, I wrote about this after the finals run that they had to make a big move this summer. Um, they owed it. I think they owed it to Jimmy Butler. Um, when Jimmy Butler joined this team in 2019, the Heat were going nowhere. Okay. They signed Jimmy Butler and I think they've exceeded. I think if you gave Pat Riley truth serum and I tried to get Pat Riley to admit it when I wrote about the Jim and I wrote the Jimmy Butler story in the fall, I tried to get Pat Riley to admit that Jimmy's exceeded expectations here. And he was like, anytime you start sign a star player, your expectations go high. But for them to make two finals, be a one seed two seasons ago, the three deep playoff runs, they have exceeded expectations because all of a sudden in the playoffs, Jimmy Butler just goes nuts. And I think that's covered up a lot of flaws with this team. And I just don't think Jimmy can cover it up during the regular season anymore. And as much as I like the Rozier trade, I think him and Hero in the backcourt together is a disaster. Rozier is not like an incredible defender. At the same time, every game you're seeing teams um, just attack Tyler Hero. Even if like Rozier's guarding Jalen Brunson, and Brunson's like, mm, I'm still going to attack Hero instead. I think their backcourt is too small. I think they don't have enough size. And I think the sample size is big enough now that Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero just aren't that good together. I, I don't think it's a leg- legitimate trio. Um, I, I just think that they lack so many things in the flaws of this roster that for so long were being kind of uh, covered up by Spo's genius, Jimmy's brilliance. It's not happening anymore. And I, I think they're on the road to a major overall, if not at the deadline, then this summer. Well, but. Uh- Let's unpack this a couple of ways. You mentioned the Hero, Adebayo, and Butler trio. I think I've played 15 games together this season at last check. They were 5-10 and 10 in mm-hmm. games that those three have played. So th- there's something that's off with that group. Um, I, you know, I, I've talked to NBA people that think the best move is to bring Hero back to that second unit and mm-hmm. put Duncan Robinson into that starting lineup because Duncan Robinson is, you know, a strictly three-point shooter or a rim shooter, right? Like he's going to shoot mm-hmm. threes or he's going to take shots uh, at the rim. That's kind of the sort of player you need playing opposite those guys. Not to say Tyler Hero's a, a, a lesser player, but he's a different player. So mm-hmm. maybe putting Tyler Hero back in that sixth-man role will shake things up because so far – it just isn't working with those three guys in the rotation. Uh, this recent stretch, this seven-game losing streak, I mean, the offense has been terrible. Dead last Brutal. in the NBA Brutal. during this seven-game uh, losing streak. And frankly, the defense has been much better. The defense is 28th in the NBA during this this seven-game losing streak. So they're not getting it done on either end of the floor. And look, the, the, the throwaway line is often like, well, let's just get, let them get to the playoffs. Like, they're mm-hmm. a regular season team. They got in last year through the play-in. They made their run. Um, all credit to Miami for doing what they did last year. But you can't expect that to be the rule, right? Like, it, it has a better chance of being the exception um, in situations like that. And nothing we're seeing from Miami at this point makes you believe that just because the calendar turns to April – then everything is going to be right in Miami. That these guys that maybe they don't get all that excited about regular season games in January, they'll turn it up in April. I believe there's another gear to Jimmy Butler, but the numbers are what the numbers are. They're top three 
don't play well together. Their offense, as of late, has been awful. Their defense has fallen off a cliff. Uh, look, and again, Terry Rozier is shooting sub-40% during his time in Miami. I think mm-hmm. that's going to get better. He's going to get more yeah. comfortable. He's going to get better. Uh, and that'll certainly help. But, you know, I, I just think there's, you know, amongst Heat fans, there's probably some there that believe, like, all right, let's just, let's, let's just get to, like, you know, stay around 500 get into that playoff mix. We can beat Philadelphia. We can beat Milwaukee. And then we saw what we did to Boston in the playoffs last year. Different situation, different mm-hmm. years. Boston is better. Um, Milwaukee is better. Is certainly Philly's different. Better. Milwaukee, yeah. you know, my, who knows if Milwaukee's better yet, but <laughs> we'll see what happens with, with that group. So I, I don't think you can count on that if you're Miami. My take is, is this is genuinely cause for concern in my, mm-hmm. where the Heat are right now. Let me speak to that section of Heat fans for a second, because I know this is going to get aggregated by my guy, Drew, who somehow listens to every NBA podcast ever. The idea that the Heat can get to the playoffs and just like sprinkle some culture masala over the top of what's happening here and make another run is absurd. Okay, And like you said, all credit to this team for what they've done. But last year was was fun and incredible. Because it was a massive outlier. There is a reason that does not happen consistently in the NBA that eight seeds make the NBA finals. Okay. And expecting that to happen again is ludicrous. And you can point to what, what they did in 2020 making the finals in the bubble. Everyone was in the bubble. I agree. But that was also a like once in a lifetime, once in a multiple generation kind of crazy event that had effects that we we can't quantify. We don't know. So if their options are like counting on another pandemic or making the finals as an eight seed, that can't be a strategy. Asking Jimmy Butler to play like prime Michael Jordan in the playoffs every year can't be the strategy. Okay, so the idea that they they just need to get to the playoffs and then it's we can beat anybody, I think is ludicrous. Um, like Boston would, would wipe the floor with this current Heat team, frankly, in the second round or the first round, just if Miami would even week, exactly, so, yeah. and it, so I don't buy the idea that they just need to get to the playoffs. Like um, that's ludicrous. It's not going to work this year. Uh, there's a lot of nuance to the deep runs they made in 2020 and last year. That you know, frankly, it's it's not a replicable strategy. It's just not. And you know, you mentioned moving Hero to the bench. I, to me. It's so hard to have a conversation about Hero because people, especially in Miami, get so charged up. And, you know, the Heat have kind of waffled from he's on the block to we're only trading him for a top 25 guy uh, to he's a cornerstone of what we're going to do in the future. Their issue, I think, as long as they have Hero, I mean, you look at their best lineups from the playoffs last year. uh, You know, Hero didn't play, okay? You know, obviously he was injured in game one, didn't come back, like, they cannot afford, I think, to have a Rozier Hero backcourt as a long-term solution. They're too small. Look at any contender in the league. You can't have a backcourt that small without one of them being basically like Damian Lillard or Steph Curry or the other one not being a great defender. They have neither. They don't have a, like a lead offensive player or a great defender in the backcourt. And frankly, I think they're going to have to look long and hard at basically evaluate every piece outside of Jimmy and Bam this summer and if they make sense. And I think Hero is their most realistic option. At I don't think they need to go Kevin Durant hunting with Tyler Hero. Like, if they had someone, frankly, I've said this name before, Jeremy Grant, like, they need wings. They need size. Like, that, that's what they lack. And 
I think their like paralysis with Hero, in which we're only trading him for a top fifteen guy, I think that's getting misguided. And I, I think they need to think long and hard about building a team that fits around Jimmy Butler and Bam. Because I, I don't think this is it. And I, I think the idea of just let us get to the playoffs is I, I promise you deep down Eric Swolster knows that's not the way forward. What they did last year is not the way forward. Yeah, and you look at the schedule they have coming up. You know, this losing streak, um, <laughs> this stretch could get worse. I mean, yep. they've got Sacramento on Wednesday. Good luck keeping up with the Kings offense. Um, it's a gimme against Washington, or at least it should be. The Wizards have actually played a decent yeah, basketball. I, I don't know. look at any game as a gimme for the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then they got the Clippers at home, Orlando at home, San Antonio at home, and the Spurs. We'll see what they're playing like in early February, but they've actually been playing a little bit better. Then Boston is back at home, and then the Heat go on a six-game road trip that takes them to the end of the month through Milwaukee, through Philadelphia, through New Orleans, through Denver, uh, through Sacramento. So, you know, <laughs> the, the way the Heat are – the Heat are going to have to do kind of a 180 with how they're playing mm-hmm. to avoid one of those, like, 2-10 and 10 stretches – over these next 12 games. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting stretch for the Heat. Um, you know, there's some other stats under the hood. Bam's shooting has fallen off a cliff. Jimmy Butler is finishing at the rim, his turnovers. Uh, they have a lot of concerns there, so I, I don't know how they turn it around, but that's literally why they pay Spo uh, the very big bucks is to figure all that out. Um, let's move on, Chris, to... The Warriors and Lakers played kind of an incredible game Saturday night. It it almost felt a little bit like a loser leaves town match. Like both those teams desperately needed that game. Double OT, the Lakers pull it out. You know, first of all, let me say, there's no like real way to talk about this on a basketball podcast. Like what the Warriors have gone through this year. I, I don't know how they played a basketball game after losing an assistant coach. Like it's... So obviously there are bigger things at play, but they're 19 and 24. They're three games, two and a half games, I believe, out of the plane right now. You know, I keep, I keep thinking Steph's going to find a way to pull this out. It just hasn't been there as great as he's been. Is this is this done for them? Like, is this season done? Or like, are we are we just past the Warriors at this point, or you know, do you give them a glimmer of hope? If you want to take an optimistic view of the Warriors, you can say that their last two losses to Sacramento and the Lakers came by a combined two points. So they were right there at the end uh, against both those teams. Um, but, and I, I agree with you, like what they've gone through on a personal level is hard to come back from when you've got an assistant that, that passes away. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot. I can't imagine what that team with that organization uh, is has been going through over the last uh, week, ten days. Uh, that being said, the the defense is atrocious. Like it, it's it's like really atrocious. <laughs> like I look it up these ratings in January. In January, Golden State's defensive rating has been the NBA's worst. It is more than three points worse than 29th ranked Detroit. Like, it is three points worse than the Detroit Pistons in the month of January. Draymond Green, his return has not solved Golden State's defensive problems. And if they are playing this bad defensively, they're not beating anybody in the postseason. Like, anybody. (laughs) They're not making Um, the postseason. I mean, mean, yeah, I mean, forget the postseason. The play-in. They're not beating anybody in that mix. So, 
I, look, I, I think this group had its chance. We're more than halfway through the season. It's not there. They don't defend. The Kaminga-Wiggins combination, whatever they're on the floor, is bad. Um, you know, Clay Thompson plays well in spurts. You know, Draymond is, is okay. Steph is still great offensively, but he gets no help. Uh, if they want to give themselves a shot to do something in this playoffs, they've got to do something. They've got to shake things up. And I know how hard that is. If you're Mike Dunleavy Jr., a first-year general manager, to be the one that breaks up the dynasty is a lot to ask. And I, I saw some people on ESPN, Ramona Shelburne, talking about how they're going to have to consult Steph Curry on this. That's fine. But ultimately, you've got to do what's best for this team and what's, what gives this team the best chance to maximize Steph Curry's final remaining good years. Uh, and that could mean dealing Clay Thompson, uh, who isn't on an expiring contract. That could mean looking at options for Draymond Green. Like, you've got to put all options on the table if you're Golden State because the number of points you're giving up is absurd. I mean, Detroit is a terrible defensive team. They have been three points better in defensive rating. I, I can't underscore that point enough than the Golden State Warriors in the month of January. It is wild how bad they've been defensively. So, you got to do something. You got to shake things up. Maybe that means going all in for somebody like DeJounte Murray being willing to give up a Jonathan Kaminga. Uh, maybe that means something else. But if you let the deadline pass and do nothing, you're admitting that not making the playoffs this season is okay because there's nothing that we've seen through 40-some-odd games that makes you believe this Golden State team uh, can win a playoff series. Nothing. At this point, because even in a best case scenario, they're going into the first round and they're going up against the Nuggets or they're going up against the Clippers. And you got to be a real bright eyed optimist for Golden State <laughs> to believe they can just flip a switch and turn it on and get uh, better in the postseason. It's kind of the same discussion we had about Miami, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. like, well, Miami, they'll turn it on when they get to the playoffs. Well, Golden State, they've got so many experienced guys, they'll turn it on when it gets to the playoffs. Well, you know, it didn't work last year, really, when, you know, they were a better team than they were this year. They just squeaked by uh, the Kings in the first round. Then they got beat up by the Lakers in the second round. So I, I don't buy into that theory. I don't ascribe to that theory at all. I think they've got to do something. They've got to make a bold move to give this team any chance of, of finding postseason success. I think they have to make a bold move to give themselves a chance to make the postseason. I mean, yeah. look at the teams ahead of them. And there's no no easy outs there. No one who can just say, ah, oh, that team's going to fall out. That team's going to drop off. Mm -hmm. Look at Memphis. Um, Memphis is 6-6 six and six since Memphis losing is, John Morant. Memphis is like three games behind the Warriors, which is absurd. It's they unbelievable. Are, they are one injury away from holding invincible-style tryouts on Beale Street. That's <laughs> yes, how banged up yes, the Grizzlies yes. are. And yet they're still finding ways to win games. Yes, Incredible job the Grizzlies have done this season. Um, it's, you know, I don't know if you saw the the latest David Fincher movie, The Killer, um, but the main character is basically like always repeating this one line. It's like, reject empathy, you know, no emotion. That's got to be Mike Dunleavy. He's got to have no emotion, no empathy. Everything has to be on the table uh, for this Warriors team, to say the least, at the deadline, whether that's Clay, whether that's Draymond. I think everyone except Steph has to be on the table. Um, like you said, unless they just want to accept it's not going to happen this year, and you know, but they don't—they don't even have their first-round pick. Uh, their pick's supposed to go to the Blazers, so uh, 
I don't know what they do here. I, I think that pick is top four protected. Um, I don't think it's just lottery protected. So I don't think they're going to be bad enough uh, to get mm-hmm. that pick back. They got to figure something out. Um, it, it's just, you know, it's really unbelievable how quickly this has spiraled. And it's just baffling to me because Dunleavy said after the Draymond entry, you know, these next 15 to 20 games will determine where we go. We've seen enough, you know? <laughs> We've seen enough. It's not good enough. Um, uh, they got to do something serious. It's like that political uh, reporter, Dave Wasserman. I've seen enough. The, he, yeah, he, yeah. He, I'm calling it. Yeah. He, he calls the election. Yeah. Like, we've yeah. seen enough with Golden yeah. State. We know exactly what they are. And you're right. Mike Dunleavy did say that after, you know, after Draymond. Uh, well, here you are. Like, you're, you're awful defensively. You spent the month of January being the worst defensive team in the league by a country mile. Um, the numbers with Wiggins and Kaminga are not improving. Uh, you are what your record of the numbers say you are. Like, if if you need any more evidence, uh, I I don't I don't know what to tell you. Mm-hmm. Real quick, Chris, before we get out of here, I want to ask you about something that I think's popped back up. We talked about this at the start of the season. Um, Rachel Nichols, I, I think, did an interesting video about it recently. So Joel Embiid misses the game in Denver on Saturday, which. I believe he was injured. That was still lame, and I hope the the NBA is looking into it. Come um, on, of course, looking into it. He missed the game against Portland too, so it's not like he just sat out one game and came back against. The I, I get that. I get that. But 15 minutes before the game, after not being on the injury report, that it was a, you know, it was a little. Uh, the optics, at the very least. We're not okay, good. The, the opt- and I, look, I feel bad for Nuggets fans that probably paid a premium for those tickets. Those mm-hmm. are the people I feel bad for because. You know, I'm sure they were high on the resale market for sure. Um, but like, it was just a couple of weeks earlier that Joel Embiid had 41 against Denver, and it's not like there's. I'm not. I'm not suggesting like there's animosity either between Joel yes. and Jokic. They seem I, to be like, yeah, they seem to really Above like each other. The yes. two of them, like they, they are really I don't, cool. I don't think he ducked Jokic, or I don't think he ducks big games. But I think he was kind of like Maxi's out, Harris is out. Do I really need to play in this one? Um, Come on. And then what's the explanation for Portland? We thought we were going to win. Well, it turns out they got stomped in that <laughs> game, too. Um, but Embiid is creeping up very close to kind of the 65-game cutoff for postseason awards. Like, I think he's probably the runaway um, MVP favorite. Um, he should be first-team All-NBA. But I think now he can only afford to miss five more games. And like you mentioned, he missed that next one, so clearly there's some stuff lingering here. Um, the reason I never liked this rule is because I think voters such as yourself always took games played into consideration. Mm -hmm. I think Embiid maybe wins MVP three years ago, Jokic's first year, if he plays more games. Um, you know, Bam Adebayo, the year Marcus Smart, uh, was gifted the defensive player of the year by the Boston Media Mafia, you know, maybe wins, (laughs) maybe wins defensive player of the year if he plays more games. But, so that's always been a factor. Like, if you look back on the season and Embiid doesn't isn't all NBA because he played in sixty three games, I think it's going to look ridiculous. Um, where are you on kind of that rule right now? And do you think the NBA is maybe starting to feel some of the heat? Well, they're definitely feeling the heat. And look, this was you know this was a trial run, right? Like this is the number they thought was going to work. I don't think this number is etched in stone for years to come. I wouldn't be surprised to the NBA revisit that, revisit a lot of things. This summer, you know, you see the scoring numbers exploding. I think mm-hmm. the NBA is going to take a long look at how they allow teams to defend 
you know, next summer. So the NBA has always shown a willingness to be fluid and flexible with with their rules. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised, let's say that, to see next season the NBA drop that number down to 60, especially if we have a bunch of guys that are in that 62 to 64 range that just miss out on key awards that voters would have made them eligible for, would have put them in the mix because they deemed 62, 63 to be enough. I do think if you play in the 50s, it's unless you have an absurd season, it should be disqualifying. I think mm-hmm. if you're if the number of games played begins with a five, you probably shouldn't be MVP. You probably shouldn't be all NBA, at least not if there's not competition that is comparable that's played many games. So my midseason advice to the NBA would be to make it a 60-game threshold next year. I think if you miss 22 games and you don't get on an all-NBA team, that's that's not a NBA thing or a voter thing. That's a you thing. Whether it's because of legitimate injury or rest, um, that's the number I would probably make uh, as the cutoff. Uh, but I do think it will get interesting you know, when we get to April and you have a bunch of guys that are right there in that mix, uh, how do teams balance rest, back-to-backs, things like that, that the traditional things they 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 use, to, to, they, they employ, uh, th- that I think it's going to get interesting because these guys want to get those awards, man. The money's real. Like, the money's real for win- making All-NBA. The money's real for winning MVP. Uh, so uh, that's where I think it would get interesting. But my, my take is I don't think 65 games – 65 games to me is too high. I would probably go to 60 and be comfortable with that. I think 60 is a is a fair compromise. And to your point, I think, again, I think voters have kind of had that rule, like an unofficial rule in some level. I, I do think that like under Mostly, 60 has... I, I have. Yeah. Like, and I, I've voted for yeah. All-NBA for years now. And I think, like, I want to say LeBron in a recent year, it was last year, the year before, right. I think he made an All-NBA team and he was in the 50s. Um, but he was probably third he was, team. Out, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, he was third yeah. team. Third team of mine. Yeah. He was outstanding that year when when he was when he was active. But for the most part, guys plays in the fifties. They they don't make my list. And I do look. I think in years past, I'm, I have to double check my own work. But like um, one of the reasons Jokic has surpassed even Embiid on my ballot has been games played. Like he's yeah. he has been a durable guy during his MVP season. So. Um, you know, vote, voters take a lot of it into account. I look. I know why the NBA is doing it. They want to curb the, you know, the 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 rest, uh, you know, the injury management, all that stuff. Load mm-hmm. management. We want to try to slow that down. Uh, but I think they they can and will tweak it this summer. I, I do expect there to be some kind of change this off season because the NBA, if nothing else, they're not stuck on their rules, right? Like they they do make yeah. changes. They do yeah. adapt to the times. I think they'll adapt to this one as well. It's just going to look so silly if we look back on the season and Joel Embiid is not all NBA because he played 64 games. Um, that would be – that would – it was not MVP for playing yeah. 64 games. Like right now, Joel Embiid's got MVP numbers. He's, they're better yeah. than what they were. More more points per minute. I, I mean, mean, it's – It's crazy. So, yeah. I mean, like I, I haven't thought about it because Tim Bontemps hasn't hit me up with his latest straw <laughs> poll. But, you know, I mean, Joel Embiid's certainly rising on my MVP ballot. You know, Nikola Jokic – Doing his thing, same reliable, yeah. dominant offensive player that he's always been. I think it will get interesting. And, you know, if it's at 64 games, you know, watch out. <laughs> that can be a lot of consternation yeah. in the NBA. Um, 
it will be very interesting to watch it play out. All right, Chris, we're going to let it uh, go ahead to your interview to close this week's episode. But you and I will be back next week. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. All right, The Dream Whisperer is a new documentary that spends the better part of a decade following Dr. Dick Barnett, the captain of the Tennessee A&I basketball team that won three straight national titles between 1957 and 1959, uh, on Barnett's quest to get Tennessee A&I into the Basketball Hall of Fame. The doc will appear on PBS stations throughout February and be available on the PBS app on February 1st. Eric Draft is the director and executive producer of the Dream Whisperer. And Eric, I, I watched, I, I'm familiar with, with Dick's story and, and the mission that he had, uh, but I watched it with someone that was completely unfamiliar with it. And th- this person was watching with me, with, like throughout the documentary, you know, found herself rooting for, you know, this to play out the right way. Like it was kind of like, is he still alive? Is is his team going to get in? Because it became like engrossing in that sense. So I encourage people, even if, you know, if you know the outcome of the documentary or the end results, uh, watch it with somebody that has no idea because it, it, it reels them in pretty quickly. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the Titanic. You know what's going to happen at the Titanic, but it's still a great movie. I'm not saying it's a great movie like the Titanic. It's a great movie on its own. But um, certainly uh, when we started this uh, long journey, and it was 11 years in the filming and about 12 years altogether uh, to make the film, 
you know, the odds of getting into the Hall of Fame were stacked way against us. Uh, I don't even know if they qualified at that point uh, to be on the, the consideration list. Um, but, um, you know, it was Dick Barnett's determination to keep going. Uh, that's just infectious. And we just said, you know, we're just going to keep going and see whatever happens. You know, if, if they didn't get in, that would be the story too. Um, but we knew that the story itself based in 57, 58, 59 was interesting enough and powerful enough to make a documentary on its own. I mean, this is a team that against all odds, HBCU, a historically black university and college, you know, played in the integrated play and won three championships in a row. I mean, nobody had three-peated at that point, and nobody's three-peated since in basketball like that. So we knew we had a story, and the fact that it was lost in history made it even more intriguing. And then contemporary following Dick Barnett trying to get the world to pay attention and to listen and to remember this team seemed like a perfect fit. I think a lot of people are familiar with the story of Texas Western, which was obviously immortalized in Hollywood in Glory Road. This story, Tennessee A&I, preceded Texas Western. I mean, they went through, you know, a lot, you know, during that time, um, you know, the Jim Crow era in the U.S. I know that a lot of this flowed from George Willis's column, my friend formerly with the New York Post. Just kind of walk me through the genesis of all this and why you believe this was worth the investment. I mean, I said the top better part of 10 years, more than 10 years, obviously to put this, uh, this whole documentary together. Well, I, you know, I share the same admiration for, for uh, George as, as you do, as you do. I mean, George is a, a top notch journalist. And, and when his article came out in the post about Dick Barnett and, you know, you know, trying to get some attention for this team, um, it was actually sent to me by the executive producer, Ed Pesquitz, who is a lifelong basketball fan, just an incredible guy, and, uh, you know, said, wouldn't this be a great story? He had seen the documentary that I did for ESPN, one of the 30 for 30s called Renee on Renee Richards, and he reached out to me out of the blue and said, you know, would this be a good story? And I said, yeah, this would be a great story. I just didn't know that it would be such a long journey. So when we started filming, uh, you know, the odds were against us, like I said, but, but we just kept going, you know. And, and obviously, when you're doing a project like this, it's not like 11 years of every day working on it. You know, I, I produced and directed a bunch of films in between the time we started and the time we finished. Uh, but this always was calling my name. This was always getting back to us. And, and Dick and I had this little funny thing. He'd call me up and he'd go, TSU, which man get on it. We're going, we're going to the garden to see uh, Clyde Frazier and Spike Lee, or we're going to see Al Sharpton, or we're going here to Tennessee State to, to, to try to get the president to do something. So I knew when he called, it's time to fire up the cameras and, and, and pack my bags. Yeah. And that just spoke to Dick Barnett's passion for, you know, this, um, you know, a lot of the people he talked to, I, I don't want to use the word ambush because it has a negative connotation, but like he just walked right up to Spike Lee and said, we got to make something happen. Walked up to Clyde in the garden footage that is on the documentary, as you mentioned, going to Tennessee state and, you know, you know, forcing these meetings to, to get people involved, Al Sharpen, forcing him to, to get involved. Why did you find him to be 
so passionate about this for so long? You know, it's just in his DNA. It's the same way that he practiced. I mean, you know, talk about a guy who just would, you know, shoot and shoot and shoot. You know, Senator Bradley talks about it. I mean, he's just got this uh, persistence and determination unlike anyone that I've ever seen. And and similar to the way he played, because, you know, he was on the great 70 and 73 Knicks teams that won championships. He wasn't a big talker. He led by how he played. And he led this movie by what he did, not what he said. Obviously, he, you know, would say, you know, certain things. But I really learned a lot making this this film with him and seeing him just, you know, just go up to everyone. And, and one of the things that, that I kind of realized watching the film recently, because, you know, you make these films and you just watch them and you watch them for, for, for all kinds of reasons. You know, after they won their championships, you know, they didn't have the national acclaim that a team today might have. They didn't go to the White House. They didn't, uh, you know, they weren't on the, the, the boxes, uh, the Cheerio boxes. They went back to Nashville because that's where the school was, and they were in the sit-ins. They participated in the protests. They were going for, for equal rights for, for, for black people at the time. So they went to sit-ins in, at the lunch counters where they sat in the white uh, seat-only area. They were spit on. People threw uh, milkshakes on them. They were humiliated, but they stood there and took it with grace and dignity. And what I realized is that that must have had such a impact on him that now a guy like Spike Lee blowing him off doesn't deter him. He keeps going. And, you know, like I learned a lot. Like, yeah, that's how you make get things done. You don't react and get all emotional and, and cry like a baby. You say, okay, not this place, but I'm going to go to the next. Why do you think it took as long as it did to get this team into the Hall of Fame. I have to imagine that that you believed at different points that it would happen before 2019, that, you know, this is a, a ready-made story for the Hall of Fame. You know, a pioneering all-black team um, winning three straight national championships. There, there are, I don't want to say lesser figures, but there are, are less qualified, I would say, Hall of Fame inductees than this Tennessee A&I team? Why do you think it took as long as it did? I don't think that they had the political and PR machine behind them. First of all, TSC... It's kind of a shame that you need that, though, right? Like, I mean, the story should speak for itself. If you end up, like, it's kind of like that old saying, like, you got one job, Hall of Fame. Like, you know, your one job is to identify stories of this caliber and, you know, execute what you're supposed to execute. Yeah, and I, I mean, even when it was brought to their attention that there was such an oversight, it still took all of these years to finally get them in. And it, I think one of the reasons is, is that, you know, it wasn't like commercially, you know, um, opportunistic for them to go in. It was, it was, you know, there weren't big dollars behind this. There wasn't some big, you know, campaign that could go behind this. This was one man's journey to make the world hear it. And we thought that that was something worth telling. You know, so that's that's exactly, you know, why this is got done. It's because of Dick Barnett. Yeah, and I don't know if there's a villain in a story like this, but I got to tell you, Eric, the president of the Hall of Fame 
has a little villain in him. It seems like, or he he gets the you you kind of look at him and you you squint a little bit at him. You get a little angry at him for some of his explanations as to why this uh, this team didn't get in the Hall of Fame. And one of the things that was notable to me, and again, I encourage everybody to watch it from start to finish. At, at the very end, when and I'm blanking on his name, you obviously know it. I'm blanking on the top of my head, but he he walks over to Dick Barnett uh, shortly after. Dick gets there and Dick's sitting in a cushioned chair and he sort of pats it or whatever you need. And you kind of let the key and he walks away and Dick looks like he's just sort of staring at him and you let the shot linger for a minute. And because you let it linger for a minute, it got people like me and, and people I that have watched it uh, thinking like, you know, it, it, you can almost, if you were writing like a, a, a subtext to it, it would just be like, you know, and he looked, if you, you look long and hard at the man that's been, keeping him out. Like, how did you view that moment? Am I misinterpreting that? Not at all. In fact, it could have been a lot worse with the footage we had. <laughs> we, we, it wasn't, uh, you know, the footage speaks for itself. It could have actually told much worse volumes. Uh, we actually went to some lengths to, 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 to try to not bury anybody. But, but, but the individual you're talking about was just the spokesperson and the figurehead for the institution. Mm -hmm. So he was communicating what the institution was telling him. He wasn't, you know, in a vacuum here. Um, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the Hall of Fame and the NBA are basically the same. You know, the board members are all part of the NBA. The NBA funds a lot of the, the Hall of Fame. And the NBA also owns most of the footage that's on the Hall of Fame. So Dick Barnett was never a commercially bankable type of star. He was the guy that stood up and called a spade a spade. And, and that's what you gotta love about him, you know? And, and that's probably why it probably worked against him also and against the team. You had an interview in there with David Stern, who of course passed away in 2020. You say the NBA has you know, a powerful influence over the Hall of Fame. Um, wh what was Stern's position on all this? I mean, you would think is the commissioner of the NBA and one of the more heavy-handed commissioners you're going to find during his days. Uh, he, he could have pushed it through if he really wanted to. What was your your reaction or your takeaways from speaking to David Stern? Well, well, I think our timing in that regard was not the best. I mean, I think David Stern was an ex incredible, incredible uh, commissioner, incredible man. He did so much for the sport of basketball. Mm. And he even says in his interview, sometimes we get it wrong and mm. we need to go back and fix things. I mean, he says it. And, and I believe that he would have had he lived longer. But not long after the interview, he passed away, unfortunately. And I think, I don't think the, the new commissioner saw this and said, no, I just think it didn't get to his desk in time. Mm. So I think that it was just a, a confluence of, of timing uh, and bad timing for the, the team's uh, message to get to the highest office. So I don't think it was intentional at that point. I think Stern would have done something about it had he could. But, you know, again, it is a democratic process. So even though the, the NBA has a very heavy hand in the institution of the Hall of Fame, there are votes that are required. Mm -hmm. Now they've created uh, new commission, you know, uh, subcommittees for schools like this that might have been 
uh, overlooked and, and they might not go in the traditional way. But I don't believe that um, that that the that the current commissioner was trying to keep the team out. You know, one of the things I thought was was interesting um, was you know it's one thing to be unknown or kept out of the basketball hall of fame, a national global institution. When you went back to, you know, to Tennessee and we're interviewing kids on campus and I think some faculty members, even on campus, like they didn't know anything about this team, you know, that was there. I mean, how, how surprised were you to find out that even, you know, in his own backyard that, you know, those championship teams just didn't resonate. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, it's hard to, to point fingers, but for whatever reason, the school completely dropped the ball on this. And they even admitted, I'm mm-hmm. Teresa Phillips, who's an extraordinary uh, individual, she played, she was the athletic director, she says it in the film, somehow we missed the ball here, you know, and there was, it was almost like, you know, there was no um, effort until we started. And even when we started, it was hard to get the school to take it serious. They, you know, as you'll see in the film, and I don't want to give away the whole film, but I think it's it, in the totality, it's still worth watching. But, you know, he goes to the school and they send him to the Greek organizations. I mean, I don't know how powerful the Greek organizations <laughs> are in your college, if, you know, but if you had them. But in our school, we were we were fighting for an existence. So sending, sending something to the Greek organizations was almost sending it, you know, uh, to, to, you know, to, you know, nowhere. So, so again, you know, the school didn't really have the wherewithal to, to, to promote it. You know, they did show up when they finally got to the, the Hall of Fame, some of these, you know, but, but the school definitely um, carries some responsibility for letting this story kind of fade off and for, you know, not communicating to the students today how important this story is, not just for Tennessee, but for all HBCUs and for America to know what happened when we were integrating, when these you know championships were being played and under what circumstances they were being played. This was, as we've noted, a long process with, for Dick Barnett, I'm sure a lot of disappointments along the way. As you were kind of immersed in this, did you ever feel like he was ready to give up? If he was, he never showed that he was. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably was ready to give up more than he was, uh, you know, but I just said, let's keep going. I mean, he, this guy has just got the determination like no other. Uh, you know, even today, and what brings us to this interview and should not be uh, forgotten, is that there's an effort now uh, to get – the team, the last remaining living players of the team to the White House finally mm-hmm. to, you know, to, for their finally their, their, their moment in the sun. I mean, think about it now. Every team that wins a national championship, the next day they're reporting the Biden administration, the Trump administration, whatever administration is calling that team for their moment at the highest office in our great country. Mm-hmm. This team did it three times, got nothing. And now we're needing to just fight for them to even acknowledge it again. So we're hoping that right now over 50 Congress uh, people signed a letter that the Biden administration will take a look at this and they'll do something about it. And I have to tell you another thing that's been really frustrating is that the vice president's office started a whole commission 
for HBCUs. And the chair of that commission is the president of TSU. And still nothing has happened for over two years. We've implored the president of TSU, say something, do something, nothing has happened. So I call this out because it's important to call it out and Dick Barnett would call it out. Sometimes it's not the most uh, pretty and, and friendly, but it needs to be called attention to. These guys deserve their moment. They're gonna come in wheelchairs if it happens. They're gonna come on crutches. They'll come on, on gurneys if they have to, but they will be there to recognize what they did, not for them, but for the country. 87 years old, is he still calling you to chat about this stuff? He calls me all the time. <laughs> TSU, that's what he says. That's my call, TSU. Yeah, in fact, I, I saw him uh, very recently, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, he's getting old. And this is a story in a film about aging, too. Not only does the story age in time, but the individuals in age in time. And a lot of people passed away in the making of this film. Anthony Mason, McClendon's widow, some of the old coaches, Coach uh, John Thompson, who speaks in it, uh, uh, Commissioner Stern. You know, how many people need to die now before this is finally recognized at the White House? So, you know, I don't know what's after the White House, but Dick will probably <laughs> find something. Well, I think it's certainly worth that recognition, that honor, that distinction to get a White House visit for those last remaining members uh, of that team. Uh, Eric, it's a terrific documentary. The Dream Whisperer is available on PBS stations throughout February, available on the PBS app on February 1st. Terrific stuff, er stuff Eric, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Chris. Great seeing you again. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.